Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Kia ora. I'm Russell Brown and I've taken mind-altering drugs. And so very probably have you. Odds are you're among the 95% of New Zealanders who have ever consumed alcohol, or the 80% who've had a drink in the past year, or the nearly two-thirds who've tried smoking tobacco at some point. Or perhaps your day has been aided by the caffeine in an energy drink, a coffee or a nice cup of tea. But those aren't the drugs we'll talk about in this series. Over the next seven episodes of this RNZ podcast, we'll consider the other drugs, the ones that around two million of us have used at some point, usually in breach of the law. And yet it all began, as the title of this series suggests, From Zero. Thanks for joining us. The consensus among historians is that pre-colonisation Māori were almost unique in having no use for intoxicants. That's not because there was nothing handy. Kawakawa is a relative of kava. Pukatea contains pukatine, which has a similar chemical structure to morphine. And Radula marginata, the scraggly little New Zealand liverwort, is one of the few plants apart from cannabis to contain cannabinoids. If you ate enough of it, you'd fail a workplace drug test. But you'd have to eat a lot. Don't try this at home. All three were and are used as rongoa Māori, medicines. But not to get high. I asked Māori historian Dr Hirani Carr why that might have been. Apart from potentially lack of availability, also life was quite challenging for Māori pre-contact. Probably not a lot of leisure time. You know, gathering kai was pretty constant, particularly towards, say, um, you know, after the war. uh, Life could be quite challenging from time to time, so I think survival... Um, didn't leave a lot of room for experimentation in that way. I think also um, some of the Māori values, practices... Now, I'm not saying, you know, getting high goes against them inherently, but um, maybe we had other things to do with our time, um, you know, other things to focus on as well. And yet there was time to find medicines. Rongoa um, are, are kind of plentiful in the, in the bush. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, things that would give life, things that would add value um, inherently. Maybe we had other ways of getting high. You know, we had an extremely strong, extremely strong spirituality. I mean, it was every tree, every stone had a modi. Tapu was everywhere. Transgression, the risk of transgression of tapu was everywhere. Um, why do you need to get high when you're surrounded by such stimula- stimulation in other ways? Although tobacco smoking took hold early on, especially among Māori women, Alcohol use for most iwi came later, sometimes as a response to grief and loss. To become an epidemic in the way it did, one of the things you could trace that to would be um, the beginning of the Native Land Court um, in the 1860s. So it was set up post-New Zealand wars um, with the onslaught of colonisation and, and full throttle. Um, Māori, it was set up to take Māori land 
And it was set up in such a way that Māori were forced through this court system, were forced to borrow money, um, were forced to live away from their home, and alcohol was part of that. It was a deliberate strategy by the lawyers, by the traders, by the government officials to hook Māori on alcohol to alienate us from our land. Um, and the grief that came with that land loss, you know, so I've lost my land now, what am I going to do? Well, I've already been exposed to this alcohol, I'll continue on this path. But for the story of how we got from zero to a time when our use of some drugs is amongst the highest in the world, you really need to look to the colonists, because they had all the drugs. And, as historian Redna Isker explained to me, quite often in the same bottle. You've got this big push in the 19th century where you've got uh, these mainly British drug companies pouring in these proprietary medicines, you know, by the bloody boatload, these the stuff which was really just known by one term, painkiller. And that was really for the poor, to help them get through their hard lives. And, you know, if they had to go to the dentist, they couldn't afford to get their teeth done, they had pain. They'd swallow the stuff and it came in many forms. Perhaps the most famous one of all was stuff called chlorodyne. The chlorodyne was just laced with uh, usually cannabis in some quantities, a lot of opium or, or laudanum or, or morphine and some sort of opiate, and also alcohol, you know. So you got a nice sort of triple kick, you know, threesome brew, and this stuff was just pumped out and sold all over the shop. As the name suggests, chlorodyne also contained chloroform. Cocaine was readily available too. But it was the opium and morphine in these potions that accounted for most addictions and overdoses. There were official attempts to regulate these legal highs. The Poisons Administration Prevention Act 1866 required that the identity of customers be recorded, much as you have to give your name and address to the chemist when you buy Nurofen Plus today. But it was a trade few people really wanted to shut down. Decent people got their narcotics in a bottle. But it was a different story when it came to the drug use of the Chinese who came here to try their luck in the gold fields. The use of the word dope, which traditionally meant any thick, viscous liquid, for undesirable intoxicants, emerged around this time. It referred to the opium the Chinese miners smoked. In this 1948 oral history, Arrowtown woman Catherine Dudley remembers the opium smokers of the 1880s. Oh, yes. Lie down. They have, have a light, you see, and they used to hold this opium at the light and melt it and then put it in the, in the point of the pipe and suck it, you know, suck this through this long pipe, you see. Then they'd sleep for hours and hours. And how did they get their opium? What did they come in? Cans or tins? Oh, no. Any opium I saw were all in little horn, you know, little wee things made out of horn. And had a wee screw top on it. I believe there was either one or two ounces of opium in the, each of these little receptacles. Of course, they had to smuggle it in here laterally. It used to come in in every conceivable way. If any of them happened to go to Dunedin, you see, and get it. But, as Mrs Ritchie and Mrs Deniston recalled, it was a little more serious when white residents got a taste for the opium. Did any of our men uh, take on the, the opium smoking that you know of? The yes, white man? yes. Um, yes, mm. here in Narrowtown. They did? Yes. And I suppose they got to like it? They got to like it, but they had to knock it off. I think it's, it's a pretty heavy drug when they do take it. Don't you mind uh, Opium Bob? He... Yes, I've heard of him. I never knew him, though. And there was one of Johnny R. Reed's brothers. He 
He took it on. Did he? Oh, several of them here in our town in the early days. Uh-huh. And why did they knock it off? Well, I suppose they were men knock it off. I suppose they had to knock it off when they couldn't get it. <laughs> well, I think they were men knock it off them because they used to go down to the Chinaman's camp here in our town. Yes. The Chinaman's camp here. Yes. That's and where I... they'd uh, acquire the habit. Yes, and I, the, the police stopped them. Oh, I see. It was good an awful smell when it's burning. Yes. Well, it mm. wouldn't do if the, if the white people got in with that. And so it was that our first real drug law was directed at a minority no one minded picking on. The Opium Prohibition Act 1901 targeted Chinese immigrants. It banned the smoking of opium and its importation for smoking. In case anyone had missed the point, it was amended in 1910 to specifically ban any Chinese person from buying opium without a prescription. You'll find this connection between race and drug law in the early statutes of many other countries. It's notable that New Zealand's respectable Chinese, fearing bad cultural PR, pushed for a crackdown harder than anyone. For the first time, we were starting to see drug users as a criminal menace. In 1917, there were local reports that shirkers were seeking to avoid the call-up for war by taking dope so that they would fail the medical. Mostly, though, New Zealanders got their news on drugs via lurid reports from the British press. This is the voice of British musical actress Billy Carlton, the modern era's first celebrity drug casualty. On the night of November 27, 1918, she attended the Victory Ball to celebrate the end of the First World War. The following morning, she was found dead in her bed at the Savoy Hotel. She had overdosed on either cocaine or the depressant she took to manage her cocaine hangover. She was 22. The subsequent court case brought to light homosexuality, cross-dressing and other forms of behaviour likely to scandalise the empire. In 1919, our own Marlborough Express intoned... The dope fiends of London seek only one thing, the feeling of well-being, of exhilaration, the elimination of time and space. Things were changing. In 1920, the League of Nations established the first international drug control body, the Opium Advisory Committee, which estimated that global production of opium and cocaine exceeded legitimate medical need by a factor of 10. New Zealand fell into line with the passing of the Dangerous Drugs Act 1927, which made it an offence to import, produce or deal in opiates, cocaine and cannabis. It was our first real drug law and the first official use of the word drugs in the modern sense. It wasn't until 1935 that we had our own celebrity drug scandal, but it was a big one. Auckland band leader and famous dandy Eric Mario was charged with the murder of his wife Thelma by a deliberate overdose of Veronal, the first of a new class of drugs, the barbiturates. He was this really charismatic Australian, actually, who, who, who stood out from the from Auckland, you know, from the other people in Auckland, and he was, you know, he was famous for um, for walking down Queen Street with a cigarette holder in one hand, a cane and gloves in the other. 
And if you can imagine this guy who was described as having the chic fashion, like, like Rudolf Valentino, that was a particular look, sort of penguin suit look, uh, walking around, you know, the average Aucklanders in their new brown sports coat, you know, and their pair of grey strides, a look that's possibly been, you could describe as Moscow 1926, you know. <laughs> Mario was standing out, you know. And, and Mario and his wife, Thelma, they were habitués of the Dixieland Cabaret, uh, which was the corner of Queen and, and Waverley Street, with its sprung dance floor. And at that, that at that time, uh, this was this was this, this first sort of glimpse or whiff of, of kind of, you know, Auckland, but you know, becoming more of a more of a sophisticated uh, place because it really wasn't. And at this place, the Dixieland patrons enjoyed live jazz and illegal liquor, because booze is the other big part of the story. Anyway, Truth would would write about the Dixieland, talking one at one point of an orgy of jazz and fizz at the cabaret, and of drunken flappers, these young women who were you know, out there dancing, whose knees gave way beneath them. And, and, the, and the woman that uh, Mario's wife was, was having the affair with was this other quite notorious person named Frida Stark, that she's pretty well known in Auckland, famous for painting herself gold. And, uh, and, and she was a regular visitor to the Mario's home at Tenterden Avenue, and it was there on the 15th of April 1935 that Mario gave Thelma a fatal dose of veronal in a glass of milk. Uh, both were said to be daily users of the, 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 of the drug, and they spent a lot of time canned, which was the word that they used at the time. <laughs> Thelma's was not New Zealand's first veronal death, but it's not hard to see why this one was such a sensation. Frida Stark, exotic dancer, became Frida Stark, chief prosecution witness. I met Mr Mario first when I went out. He said, go in and see her. I did. She was in a terrible condition. She was blue in the face and perspiration had dried on her face and there was some brown saliva that had run down her face and caked in her hair. She was gasping for breath. I said to Mario, oh, why didn't you get a doctor? And with that, I ran out to ring up from Mrs Knight's next door. I didn't wait to hear any reply from Mario before I went. Mario's defence hinged on the claim that his wife and Frida were lesbian lovers. They almost certainly were, but a 1930s jury was not about to believe such a thing. Mario's confession to being a drug addict, however, was seen as critically damaging to his defence. He was convicted twice, dodged the hangman's noose both times, and spent 15 years in Mount Eden Prison. There were other drugs associated with the music scene. As Chris Burke notes in his book Blue Smoke, the young pianist Vora Kissin gave a talk in 1938 on the use of marijuana by American jazz musicians. It was noted at the time that her talk, quote, showed evidence of extensive study of the weed. Veronal was duly added to the list of drugs it was an offence to import, produce or deal in under the Dangerous Drugs Act, but most of them remained readily available on prescription. And boy, did we like our prescriptions. Redma Iska. The legal drugs like, like Veronal were used for sleeping. The, the, the legal drugs like Dexedrine, which starts to turn up in the late 1940s without a prescription, which is actually methamphetamine, Dexedrine, turns up in the, in the late 1940s for slimming. Suddenly the you know, prescriptions are going mad, but it's very, very popular. You know, thousands of prescriptions are written for, meth, for, for methadrine, Dexedrine, and et cetera, et cetera. So you've got this whole picture of, of, uh, of these sort of drugs being used by mum and dad, and dad's got his alcohol, and you know, mum's got her, you know, mum's got her uh, sleeping pills and her slimming pills. 
Dad might be grabbing a few stunning pills uh, as well. By the 1940s, New Zealand had the highest per capita rate of heroin use in the world. Yes, you did hear that right, as Redma Isker explains. My dear old mum would talk about when she was a nurse in the 1940s using what was a very popular tipple called linkedus heroin. You could really just pretty much go to the chemist and, and say, um, I would like you know, some of this, I've got a bad cold, and it would nail the cold. Heroin is the best cure for the common cold. If heroin from the doctor had been largely curbed by the mid-50s, after the United Nations had a word, medical marijuana took a little longer. Cannabis tincture was long available on prescription in New Zealand for conditions like migraine. But eventually the World Health Organisation got its way and by 1960 New Zealand doctors could no longer prescribe it. But in decent, God-fearing 1950s God's own, it was still pretty easy to get your hands on amphetamines. You think people popping pills and dancing all night is a modern thing? My parents loved dancing in the 50s, so they used to dress up still, like the 40s. This is Harry Lyon, best known for playing in the band Hello Sailor. So when they went out, um, you know, the old man would have like um, a dinner jacket and, and, and a bow tie, and, you know, and my mother would wear a beautiful dress. And they loved dancing. They were quite good ballroom dancers. And so they were all dressed up and um, looking fantastic to me. And uh, I just remember going into the bathroom and my mother was just downing these pills. And I said, oh, what are they? And she said, oh, pet pills. Pet pills powered the pop stars too. Heartthrob Max Merritt explained to the Audio Culture website that it was amphetamines and whiskey that allowed his band to play eight-hour shifts at Auckland's Top 20 Club. Man, he recalled, by 2am we were bouncing off the walls. You could also buy what were called benzodrine inhalers, you know, which is what Jack, Jack Kerouac and co were doing in the States, which was by going by the inhaler, and it was just a strip of pure benzodrine. So you, you just break them open, swallow the, you know, with a, with a glass of water or a glass of milk or for your Eric Mario, and, um, and you would then um, just stay up for the next three days. And this is what these, these you know, bohemians were doing, you know, jazzers were doing. So we're also looking at what's happening internationally. You know, you've got this big move where basically popular culture is starting to, youth culture is really starting to take hold here. You've got these, you know, you've got these kind of alienated, um, you know, group who are, you know, sort of disaffected, sceptical, just all that same stuff you're seeing in other post-industrial nations, you know, it's all, it, all, it all starts here really. The music, the films, it all begins. Ironically, the space for all-night dancing had been created by New Zealand's tough liquor laws. The pub shut at 6, but you could party till 2am in the Auckland dance halls and bring your own hip flask. Meanwhile, the literary cliques of Wellington and Auckland favoured the jazz drug, marijuana. It usually came in on merchant ships, but some was grown in the backyards of 50s Auckland. After all, hardly anyone knew what it looked like. In 1959, things changed. The Auckland it girl Anna Hoffman was charged and jailed for six months for supplying pot to an undercover cop. As she told David Herc in his documentary High Times decades later... Well, I was the first woman in New Zealand to be arrested and charged and convicted and sent to prison for having possession of marijuana. I had no idea it was illegal. Something so harmless couldn't possibly be illegal. Anna Hoffman was an interesting case. One, she was a woman. 
And she'd been to Australia. She'd ended up at King's Cross. She'd entered the bohemian lifestyle in King's Cross. You know, she'd smoked marijuana. She'd actually got thrown out of Australia because of her scandalous behaviour. Um, when she came back to New Zealand, um, she continued um, to do what she did. And she was the first woman to be arrested in New Zealand for marijuana smoking. Uh, so she got maximum PR. Now, Anna was a lovely person and a really interesting character. Anna also liked publicity, so Anna did milk the PR quite a bit. She So she got the front page of Truth um, and things like this and posed quite willingly for pictures. So for a while, she became New Zealanders' face of drug use, if you like. She was the marijuana smoker. Uh, she got notoriety, she got recognition. Um, but, yeah, she was the face of New Zealand, bohemian drug smoking. Well, you have to look at New Zealand in those days. There was no... Um, ex-mainstream life, really. We had very few venues or outlets for anything other than the great New Zealand middle-class dream. We had no great youth movements, if you like. We'd had smatterings here and there. We had bodgies and woodgies when it came to sort of people who hung around milk bars. But we had no mass youth movements or no, you know, nothing like that. We had no outsider ethos, if you like. Um, so... Yeah, Anna and people like her were our first sort of indication that, you know, we may not be as homogenous society as we may like to think we were. You're listening to episode one of the RNZ podcast, From Zero, the story of New Zealand and drugs. I'm Russell Brown. The public was scandalised by the Anna Hoffman bust, but worse was to come. Again, six o'clock closing was involved. If you wanted to drink after the pub shut in early 60s Auckland, you either went home or to a beer house. Just as a modern tinny house might sell pee or harbour stolen goods, these illicit drinking dens were also home to other vices, including, sometimes, marijuana. You may have heard of the Bassett Road machine gun murders. Well, here's how that went down. When Ronald Jorgensen and John Gillies killed Kevin Spate and George Walker in 1963, it was over a dispute between two beer houses. But police seized on the information that Gillies had smoked a reefer before setting off to do the job. Clearly, they decided weed had made Gillies homicidal. Police officer and later commissioner Bob Walton was dispatched in 1964 to America to learn more about this scourge. Bob Walton is an interesting case because in some ways everything happened after his visit to the US. He went there and he was shown things and taught things that he brought back to New Zealand. So in some ways he inherited uh, that J. Edgar Hoover, that whole anti, um, anti-drug use American thing, but he brought it back to New Zealand. And all of a sudden, a New Zealand police force that hadn't really sort of stepped on drug users with any degree of focus suddenly developed a focus. Things were about to get serious, neck-level serious. The Draconian Narcotics Act 1965 reversed the onus of proof in drug cases and set a penalty of 14 years imprisonment for possession of more than an ounce of pot. And Walton set up the police drug squads, who were generally far more brutal, corrupt and lawless than the stoners they pursued. 
here were these guys who had suddenly been given sort of unlimited power over drug users, which they did take advantage of. You know, there were lots and lots of really unpleasant stories. There were sexual stories. There were stories of violence and things like this. It wasn't a particularly good time for... New Zealand drug users because of the way that police officers dealt with them, thought of them and treated them. What the flurry of enforcement couldn't do was change demographic reality. The post-war cohort of baby boomers was reshaping society. When the Rolling Stones were charged with possession of speed and weed in 1967, They weren't criminals, but pop-cultural heroes. They'd been high on LSD when the police raided, but it was New Zealanders who eventually became the world's highest per capita users of LSD. The law did eventually change. The Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 followed the so-called Blake Palmer report into New Zealand drug use. It reserved harsher penalties for dealing rather than use, but little was done to satisfy the report's call for an emphasis on treatment rather than criminal sanctions. Ironically, 1975 was also the year the real criminals showed up. Marty Johnston, Terry Sinclair and Peter Fulcher started off smuggling cannabis, then stepped up to heroin and the massive importation and distribution operation we now recall as Mr Asia. The massive importation and distribution operation we now recall as Mr Asia began with cannabis and moved to heroin. Well, basically they were entrepreneurial, you know, like there's this theory that New Zealand, there's two sorts of New Zealanders, there are Methodists and there are whalers, and they were whalers, you know, they were entrepreneurs, you know, and they are kind of like colony tamers, they, go, they can't go, so they were very good, they learnt about the business model, they learnt how to do it, they learnt it through cannabis. Out at, out at uh, We Take a Prison, and uh, you know, how about you know, selling uh, you know, uh, you know, what were called Buddha sticks. They learned about, about how to get the market going, you know, and how to, you know, the whole demand, because they knew they find out about the demand. It's all about the demand. David Hirk describes it this way. It's a really good example of how someone could actually industrialise a cottage industry. We'd had small-time marijuana growing, all of a sudden, we had we were importing vast amounts of Buddha sticks from Southeast Asia. Um, we had boatloads of them coming through. Then we suddenly began to get heroin. Um, all of this sort of happened because of the way Terry Clark and his cohorts thought of a product. So it wasn't just get, getting money. What it was was providing a whole distribution and business structure to drug use in New Zealand. So it was, uh, the drugs were imported, but they went down through a particular chain of supply. So you had the importers, you had the packages, you had the distributors, and unfortunately, in some cases, you had the enforcers. And all of that came because of Terry's business model. Sometimes I think of it as the McDonald's of drug use in New Zealand, because it was, it really did package and and elicit, and elicit behaviour to elicit the greatest amount of money from it possible. New Zealand was really awash with heroin. We had the strongest heroin in the Western world. 
part of the Mr Asia ethos was to provide a really pure product. So the New Zealand streets were getting 90% pure heroin. Um, we had overdoses because people were simply using too strong a product. All of a sudden we had a legal fraternity that was faced with people who had vast sums of money that they wanted to hide and conceal or they wanted to, you know put out of the taxman's reach with shell companies and things like that. Solicitors and attorneys had never done that sort of thing before. By the time the Mr Asia drug ring ended in death and prison for its masterminds, it had created two lasting consequences. One was the so-called silent epidemic of hepatitis C, which is carried today by 50,000 New Zealanders, most of them infected by sharing needles. You couldn't legally acquire a syringe. So anyone who was using heroin and wanted to inject it in that era had to get his or her syringe from somewhere else. They were stolen from hospital garbage bins. They were borrowed from friends. And they were also used and reused. And sharp needles were sharpened. And, you know, you'd go to a party and people would actually be lined up outside the bathroom where somebody who was somewhat better than everybody else was it actually administering the doses. Uh, and there were people rinsing out as best they could in hot water and things like this, but it wasn't sterile. And at that stage, no one knew anything about hepatitis C. Hepatitis C didn't get discovered to the 1990s. So a refusal to allow drug users access, even surreptitiously or under the counter, to um, uh, clean um, and sterile needles meant that we ended up with a huge population of people who were unknowingly transmitting hepatitis C. And we are suffering the consequences now. The other impact was on the quality of marijuana. Mr Asia had imported millions of potent Buddha sticks, Thai weed bound up for easy smuggling. They set a new standard for New Zealand green. Local marijuana became better, stronger and more widely used. And in 1979, its apostle came to visit. There was also an only in New Zealand response to the flow of imported heroin being shut off when Mr Asia was closed down. New Zealanders are actually very resourceful. So what happened after the Mr Asia years when suddenly we didn't, couldn't get the heroin we were used to anymore because we wasn't being imported from overseas, what we did is we made our own. Now, it's the first time in the world that anything like this had ever happened. What we did is we took Panadine, which you could get from the chemist for a headache, and by a variety of very simple chemical processes, converted it into uh, into heroin and morphine. Basically, it was a very mixed bag what you got in the, at the end, but it was heroin and morphine in a sort of murky brown suspension. Uh, it was very strong. Um, and um, so a whole using population immediately swapped to sort of this impure chemical usage. Uh, it was... So in some ways New Zealand kept its 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 um, opiate users, but they just were switched to another product, probably one that by venture was not as safe um, and was definitely uncleaner, but certainly its means of administration was still the same, so it was administered by needles, so hepatitis um, transmission did not stop. Meanwhile, while a few doctors would still prescribe amphetamine-based diet pills, the illicit manufacturer was well in swing by the early 80s, and around 1986, New Zealanders started coming home from Sydney with what were then called 
design the drugs. There's a guy in the place who's got a bit of sweet face and he goes by the name of Ebenezer Good. That almost always meant MDMA, ecstasy. And when the electronic dance music so closely associated with that drug arrived here in 1988, the E's were waiting. There was a decade of dancing before anyone died. But in 1999, it happened. The Auckland coroner has issued a strong warning against the use of the designer drug ecstasy. Matty Frankovich's comments came at the inquest into the death of Nairi O'Neill, who at 27 was the first person to die in this country as a result of taking the drug. Ms O'Neill, a telecom training officer, died in Auckland Hospital last October after going to a city nightclub. The court was told that Nairi O'Neill took the drug at a nightclub in the early hours of the morning. She was taken to Auckland Hospital after she vomited, collapsed and became unconscious. The coroner, Matty Frankovich, said the drug caused Nairi O'Neill to drink large amounts of water and it made her retain the water in her system. That resulted in the swelling of the brain that killed her. He described Ms O'Neill's body as being in a state of water intoxication. He said her death should be a warning to young people who might not know how dangerous ecstasy can be. She impressed me as a person who was a highly intelligent young woman and... Um, I don't think, like so many other people, uh, don't appreciate that the, um, the dangers of taking uh, this drug ecstasy. The story got very political, very quickly. Associate Health Minister Roger Sowery fired out a press release that opened... Helen Clark has never criticised the insidious drug culture which wrecks thousands of New Zealand families every year. Prime Minister Jenny Shipley, struggling in the polls, swiftly promised to reclassify ecstasy as a Class A drug, alongside heroin. That never happened, and the political reaction did not seem to deter anyone from necking an E. In the 30 years since it appeared in New Zealand, nearly 200,000 people have tried MDMA. In those 30 years, it has been associated with three deaths. Ironically, at the time of the ecstasy panic, a far greater threat was brewing outside the headlines, methamphetamine. Meth had been available, legally and otherwise, for decades in New Zealand, but in the late 90s it was repackaged into something else, a glass pipe drug, P. We'll look at that more closely in a coming episode, as we will another narrative covering the same years, the rise of the legal high. But for now... You will sometimes see in the news that New Zealand's use of a range of drugs, meth, ecstasy, cannabis, is the highest in the world. In truth, our lofty place on the illicit league tables is influenced by the fact that at an official level, we're relatively good at reporting this stuff. And on a personal level, we're trusting enough to admit it. But whether or not we're top, it's a fact that from the standing start of colonisation, we've come to rank highly for getting high. I asked New Zealand Drug Foundation director Ross Bell, what's up with that? You know, you'd like to think our clean, green beaches, etc. We'd be out there having fun, getting high on life, but we don't. We we like we like getting out of it, and have done for a long time. Highest users of cannabis in the world. We used to be one, among the highest users of methamphetamine in the world. We drink a lot of booze. We were the country that introduced Alco pops. We were the country that introduced. BZP legal highs and there is something and I don't know what it is about the Kiwi culture and drug use if you take legal highs for example no one there wasn't we weren't clamoring 
for a legal alternative to illegal drugs. But my goodness, within the first two years of BZP being on the shelves, a quarter of the adult population had tried them. So there is something uh, about us. I don't think that it's because we're unwell and we're all sad about life. Um, it might speak more to we're risk-takers and adventurers and um, happy to enhance our lives with with a bit of chemical. Is this a bad thing? You know, are we a, are we a bad country because we're a you know a high user of alcohol or a high user of cannabis, I don't I don't think we are, and it goes to the you know the heart of the debate that's always existed in drug policy is, should we be stopping people from using drugs or should we be finding ways to keep people safe? And it, it's that age old zero tolerance versus harm minimisation. The loss of innocence that began with colonisation has told most keenly on the people who were already here. Today, Māori are more likely than any other group to both use psychoactive drugs and to suffer the consequences of use, including mental illness and victimisation by police. Hirani Carr. Grief is still a thing. The, the grief, the loss, the trauma of colonisation, which expresses itself on a micro level through your whānau, through your relationships, through your employment, through everyday you know, aspects of racism and loss and tragedy. How do you deal with that? Drugs, alcohol, nice simple way to turn to. But the majority of Māori, and the majority of all New Zealanders who use illicit drugs, suffer no significant harm as a result. And the most harmful drug remains the legal one, alcohol. All that can be said is that New Zealanders, even when we have told ourselves otherwise, like to take drugs. And we still don't really know what to do about that. In the next episode of From Zero, we go deeper into the weed, cannabis, medical and otherwise. I'm Russell Brown. Catch you then. Our thanks to Nataunga Sound and Vision for their use of archival audio and to David Hurt for footage from his documentary High Times, The New Zealand Drug Experience. From Zero is a seven-part podcast series for RNZ. You can subscribe or listen to every episode on iTunes or radionz.co.nz forward slash series. Don't forget to rate us, and we're also on Spotify. This episode was produced by Russell Brown and engineered by Leon Wynn and Blair Stagpole. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.